0: Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily, newly designed China Access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at SupChina.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. semiconductors have assumed a place of enormous importance in conversations about China in recent years. To be sure, it's become quite cliche now to say that silicon is the new oil. Okay, sure, there's other people who say water is the new oil or data is the new oil. Uh, But just as Americans are occasionally made acutely aware of just how much the economy can be, you know, shocked by oil supply shortfalls, as we were in 1973, or more recently during the colonial pipeline hack just last year, or, you know, of course, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February, uh, we have you know felt the impact of a shortage of semiconductors very acutely recently. Uh, this resulted in big problems for sectors where, you know, not so very long ago, we didn't immediately think of semiconductors as being quite so vital, like the automotive sector. Uh, the fact that so much of the world's supply of advanced semiconductors comes from Taiwan, and that tensions across the Taiwan Strait have ratcheted up so much in recent years has, of course, added to concerns, and and not just here in the U.S., but certainly in China, too. China, after all, has been on the receiving end of increasing pressure from the U.S. and some of its allies uh, who have sought to prevent it from getting its hands on core technologies necessary to fabricate the most advanced semiconductors, let alone just being able to import those semiconductors directly. At a rare joint FBI and MI5 press briefing, uh, the chiefs of the two services just last week warned of stepped-up Chinese espionage and influence operations, and FBI Director Christopher Wray said that if China were really to take Taiwan, it would, quote, represent one of the most horrific business disruptions the world has ever seen, end quote. Uh, in recent weeks and months, Taiwan's top trade negotiator, uh, also U.S. Senator Mark Warner, you know the Democrat who heads the Senate Intelligence Committee, and many other people have also warned uh, that the disruption to the world economy of war across the Taiwan Strait would, you know, dwarf the impact of the, even the Ukraine war. Uh, aware of the vulnerability of supply chains, uh, eager to avoid political risk, and and really hoping to benefit from government largesse, American semiconductor companies are now backing legislation aimed at at reshoring or onshoring chip production. Most notably. The CHIPS Act, which we'll talk about, uh, that would earmark $52 billion for American chipmakers to you know, move more production stateside. Meanwhile, more and more companies have already been added to the entity list published by the Bureau of Industry and Security, BIS, under the Department of Commerce. These include, of course, giants like Huawei, uh, which was added some years ago now and had been a major buyer of chips produced using American IP. Beijing, understandably, has come to believe that all this is aimed at throttling China's rise as a technology power, and China's leadership has opened up all the taps in an effort to catch up as quickly as possible with the U.S. and its allies. Joining me again on Seneca to help us all better understand how semiconductors fit into broader U.S.-China relations is Paul Triolo. Paul is now Senior VP for China and Technology Policy Lead at Denton's Global Advisors ASG, formerly and probably better known still as Albright Stonebridge Group. Uh, he spent 25 years as a research analyst for the U.S. government uh, at a certain three-letter agency. And until recently, he served as practice head of global
1: technology policy at the Eurasia Group. Paul Triola, welcome back to Seneca, man. Hey, Kaiser. Great to be here and to talk about one of my favorite topics, semiconductors.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, you talk about it well, so I'm really excited. Uh, Paul, why don't we start with a broader landscape here. Uh, what's stoking our current anxiety over semiconductors? Is there any one issue that dominates, or is this more sort of a, a confluence
1: of, of several issues? Great question, Kaiser. I think the the latest anxiety over semiconductors sort of depends on where you're sitting, right? So for the general consumer, there was no anxiety over semiconductors or, or even t- until the chip shortage, really. So people just took it for granted that their next smartphone would have you know, more power or more memory, be a lot faster and do more cool things. Then all of a sudden, uh, as a result of the shortage, people could not buy the things they wanted. So all of a sudden, semiconductors and TSMC microcontrollers were on everybody's lips. Several interesting things happened here. The general consumer and public became aware that semiconductors mattered. All of a sudden, everybody, everybody realized they, they were important, mm-hmm. and that the semiconductor industry supply chains could be disrupted. They were a little bit fragile, could be disrupted by pandemics, by fires, by freezing weather. And also, as you noted, that Taiwan and China were somehow tied up with all this. And there's a lot of confusion on this, you know, the roles of China and Taiwan sort of in the bigger semiconductor. Now, for industry and Congress, for example... Anxiety over semiconductors began later in the Trump administration when people realized that 92% of the advanced semiconductors were manufactured in Taiwan by one company, and that this was a problem in a geopolitically and geographically fragile region. Um, And that anxiety, of course, spread quickly to Europe and to a lesser extent Japan, which was well aware of all this. Part of the anxiety here is the growing realization that semiconductors underpin all current and and importantly future industries. Um, particularly things like artificial Hmm. intelligence, quantum computing, wireless networks, robotics, and the metaverse. And so this was something that, again, came to the fore. And also, of course, the idea that semiconductors are used in military systems also became on the radar. For U.S. trade and economic officials, subsidies around semiconductors have been a concern for a long time, right, going back to even 2016 and also sort of China's growth in this area and, and, and desire to acquire companies. And so in 2016, for example, uh, former Commerce Secretary Penny Pritzker called China's National IC Investment Fund in an attempt to appropriate the global supply chain for semiconductors. So in the sort of trade and economic arena, hmm. China's subsidies and sort of how they're they're operating have been a concern. For Chinese leaders uh, and industrial planners and tech companies like Huawei and ZTE that you mentioned, anxiety over semiconductors arguably began on March 6, 2018, when the Commerce Department reactivated a suspended denial order on ZTE, blocking it from importing U.S. components, mostly semiconductors, yeah. from over 200 U.S. suppliers, and basically the company was, you know, on its knees uh, because it couldn't really function, couldn't support existing or future systems. Um, and then, of course, that anxiety grew uh, in Beijing as uh, we had a May 19, uh, May 2019, uh, entity list action against Huawei, which we'll discuss, and an August 2020 uh, addition uh, and an expansion of the Huawei uh, to include uh, companies that were. Um, uh, we're providing um, semiconductors using U.S. technology, sort of an extraterritorial expansion that really set off alarm bells in Beijing. And as you noted, then, you know, China now has sort of pulled out all the stops to, to, to figure out how to reduce uh, dependence on the U.S. And then finally, if you're if you're a Russian uh, leader or business person, your anxiety got really hot in February after the invasion of the Ukraine uh, and when allied export controls really ramped up pressure on, on your country and its, its industrial base because largely cutting off semiconductors and, and other products that use semiconductors. So I think now, by now, it's a secret to nobody um, in, in, in all these areas I mentioned that, yeah, semiconductors matter and their supply matters and where they're made matters. But yeah, three years ago or two years ago, you could argue, you know, People didn't know what TSMC was, for example, and now everybody is writing on TSMC and how important it is. So that that just that's probably the poster boy for the whole thing.
0: So the anxiety is quite global, and the semiconductor supply chain is really you know globalized. Mm-hmm. As we are often reminded, Paul, this may be kind of a tall order, but uh, you did such a good job, sort of laying out you know where the anxiety is from all the different actors around the world. But give the listeners a sense of. The, the complex geography of the value chain. Where are chips designed? Where are they actually fabricated? What companies dominate in fabrication or in the uh, technologies that are, are necessary for fabrication of the most advanced chips? Uh, where are they packaged and assembled? And and you know where are the the major centers of their
1: final integration into finished goods? Wow, that's a tall order, Kaiser. But I'm gonna try. I'll see what I can do here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, no, it's uh, the the other thing that I think people realized as a, a, that those people I mentioned and all the different groups is is the complexity of the um, of the the global value chain or supply chain, whatever you want to call it. So um, I think I saw one estimate that something like 120 countries um, have some parts of the supply chain. Uh, on the upstream side, so wow. you know, people were sort of shocked to learn. Well, hey, Ukraine produces, you know, neon and palladium and and all of these critical gases and other things that go into semiconductor manufacturing. So there's lots of countries that have pieces of this. Um, and then on the downstream side, of course, I think the estimate I saw was 170 some countries were were, were estimated to have been affected adversely by the global um, semiconductor shortage. So obviously. Uh, yeah, it's a complicated uh, sort of supply and then demand issue that we're talking about here. On the supply chain side, despite a lot of countries and companies being part of the mix, the industry is really concentrated in a much smaller set of countries. And those are really the US, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, Europe more broadly, but really Germany, one could argue, and, and some other smaller countries like France and Belgium have key players, which we can talk about. And China, of course, China and China is sort of the new kid on the block here. Probably if you'd asked me this question 15 years ago, I would—I I probably wouldn't have included uh, China there. So all these countries have a major concentration of key supply chain links. And because of this concentration, which can get close to, in some cases, a single key supplier or a few suppliers or producers in, in one country or area, people have come up with the idea of the sort of choke points in the industry. And this became a major issue during the pandemic as shortages backed up. But it's not new. I mean, there have previously been some cases where pieces of supply chain experience natural disasters and, you know, impact things. But on a much, but I think in in previous uh, sort of choke point cases, um, the industry was able to recover pretty quickly. I think you, in, uh, for example, in uh, in the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014, there was a big shortage of neon and the industry adjusted to that. That was really a sort of a small, again, a small, but important part of the supply chain. So if we look at these um, six areas, let's just briefly go through them. So U.S. Okay. So the U.S. has a, you know, sort of the origin of of the semiconductor industry. And it certainly leads in the area of semiconductor design. Think NVIDIA, think Apple, think AMD, think Qualcomm. Basically, um, all the chips in your in your iPhone or your Android device, mm-hmm. um, all of those really are designed primarily in the U.S. And then there are the, also, the, importantly, the design tools, uh, the so-called electronic design automation tools are all really dominated by U.S. companies. In this case, Cadence, Synopsys, and Mentor, which is a Siemens company, but most of the IP is U.S. And then, of course, the U.S. also has one of the three top manufacturing companies, Intel, that has off and on been a global leader. Intel is what's called an integrated device manufacturer. So most of what they manufacture, or at least at one point, all of what they manufacture goes into their own devices or is sold as a commodity and is not sort of specially designed And then, of course, there's lots of other really good companies like Micron and Western Digital in the memory space. So, of course, the semiconductor industry has many, many subsectors and and specialty areas. And then Texas Instruments, for example, which has long done uh, analog semiconductors and analog devices are very good companies in this space. So U.S. has a lot of players in this. And then finally, in addition to those EDA tools, the U.S. companies really dominate in the semiconductor manufacturing equipment area. So companies like Applied Materials, LAM Research, and KLA Tencore come to mind there. Now on Taiwan, very different position in the supply chain. It's home to so-called leading foundries or pure play foundries. These are companies like TSMC that yeah. that 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 focus only on manufacturing semiconductors. Um, They don't design them, um, but they have a really critical role because they work with the design companies uh, and they work with customers to to figure out what they want. The other critical piece of Taiwan's uh, position in the supply chain is uh, assembly, packaging, and testing. Something like 54 or well over 50% of that capacity is in Taiwan, although it's a much smaller part of the value chain. Hmm. Now, South Korea, of course, has uh, the second most capable foundry, Samsung, but in in that game, a much smaller player than TSMC. Um, And it also in the memory space is really dominant with companies like Samsung and SK Hynix really leading in the DRAM space and also playing in other of the memory sector. Um, And a lot of those factories, of course, are right near the demilitarized zone um, within artillery range of North Korea. (laughs) And then you had Japan, which uh, was once dominant in some areas of the industry. But it's really strong in things like specialty chemicals and the raw, some of the raw materials needed to, uh, to manufacture semiconductors like photoresists. And they also have some individual companies that are also key players in niche subsectors such, such as lithography. And of course, Japan is now making a big push to boost some of its manufacturing capability by attracting TSMC. To come to, to japan but japan is not a significant manufacturer of semiconductors at this point europe now is really interesting because europe boasts these niche players like asml in the netherlands which is the sole supplier of advanced equipment in the industry uh, that is needed to make semiconductors at the most advanced levels this is called uh, lithography equipment we'll talk about that some more yeah um, and that they, they have a monopoly on the most advanced stuff and also dominate in the sort of the second tier uh, level of equipment. And then Europe, of course, critically for Europe, they also have IP. There's an IP p- part to this. Arm designs a lot of the cores that are used in the designs to make billions of semiconductors. Every device you look around you probably has an Arm IP in there. And that's a UK-based company owned by SoftBank right now. So it has Japanese owners, but it's a UK company. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, in Europe, um, there are these. They, they have very, very good R&D centers like IMEC in Leuven, Belgium. Uh, the Franhofer Institutes in Germany, and CEA Leti in Grenoble, which are really critical to, to help uh, push the R&D and develop new manufacturing equipment in the industry. So Europe has a lot of advantages. And then finally, China. Of course, China being a new kid on the block, China I- is a big player in that outsourced semiconductor assembly and test market, OSAT. Um, so Chinese companies, it's kind of a low mm-hmm. margin business, and Chinese companies got into that early on. Um, And China does also that, as you mentioned earlier, does a lot of the integration of semiconductors into final products, using a lot of contract electronic manufacturers. And also, uh, Taiwan is also very, very prominent in that area. Companies like Foxconn, uh, Pegatron, a whole bunch of companies that are that are Taiwan companies, but they operate in China because they can find the talent and the costs are lower. Um, And then China, of course, has been trying to, as we'll talk, has been trying to move into a lot of other areas like manufacturing, like foundry. So they have a big company called SMIC, which we'll talk about, which is a a growing and important player in the foundry business. And then in the memory sector, they have a company, YMTC, Yangtze Memory Technologies, which now has around 5% of the 3D NAND market. Um, and is an upcoming player, and they're trying to break into the DRAM space. So China, across the board, you could argue, is has companies that are players, but um, in, it's, it's very uneven. Um, and they, China is the source again of a lot of the sort of that, that anxiety we spoke about because their companies are starting to become major actors uh, in many subsectors of the of the of the of the, um, of, this, of the the industry. And the question is sort of on what. On what basis do they do this competition? Are they being subsidized by the Chinese government or not? Does that affect things? And that's also part of the anxiety because there's a sense that China has benefited from access to U.S. technology, but has not always played. Its companies have not always played by the rules because the government is, you know, chucking money at them at an increasing rate. Finally, on the advanced side, really, we're talking about Taiwan and South Korea and the U.S. So that's TSMC, Samsung, and Intel. And those are the companies that are competing at the cutting edge. A lot of other companies decided, like Global Foundries, for example, decided that, it, the R&D costs and the CapEx costs of competing at that level were just too much because you have to have a very large customer base over which to amortize that R&D to really compete here. And so at this point, we're down to TSMC at the very, very cutting edge. Samsung is also competing there and Intel is trying to catch up. And so that's why the, the concern, again, about the concentration in Asia um, because of the presence of TSMC and Samsung.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so Paul, In case some of our listeners just aren't clear about this, what makes these most advanced semiconductors, this cutting-edge technology, so advanced? I mean, why is getting microprocessors smaller and smaller so important?
1: Great question. Um, It's really about sort of density of packaging and also power consumption. And also, of course, performance and allowing, you know, your iPhone to run all sorts of cool applications like facial recognition and other things. So what's driving the industry to more dense... Packaging and more dense semiconductors is really this, this insatiable need of people like you and me for, for more functionality on our iPhones and also more functionality and capability in some cloud based applications, for example. Also, the other thing that's driving it is the need for specialty semiconductors, so called ASICs, application specific integrated circuits to do really specialized tasks like run AI algorithms in the cloud. Or like on your autonomous vehicle, like on your Tesla, there are some very specialized uh, semiconductors made by TSMC that do all the video processing, for example, of all the data uh, that that a self-driving or or autonomous vehicle needs. So the industry has sort of migrated towards more and more complicated and dense packaging and and higher tech uh, and lower nodes. You know, we'll, we'll talk about seven, three, two nanometers and this, this is largely driven by the need for more performance and the need to really process bigger data loads what one could argue so the big the big thing is that the sort of data workloads particularly for ai for example have gotten so huge that you just need more and more and more capable silicon and to some degree of course the semiconductor advancements have enabled things like AI to happen because you couldn't before you couldn't really run these big data sets to train AI algorithms and now you can do that you know in a minute as as opposed to you know many 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 months um, and so there's a sort of a symbiotic relationship between some of the key applications and the need to keep driving that uh, that performance and that and also you know of course things like power consumption um, for mobile devices um, to new levels yeah so when we're talking about
0: seven, three, two nanometer Mm -hmm. scale. This is all, we're talking about really one company here, and you mentioned them, this Dutch company ASML. And the U.S. for quite some time has prevented them uh, from sharing the most state-of-the-art extreme ultraviolet or EUV lithography machines, which are amazing, truly, truly amazing devices, prevented them from sharing that with China and is now pushing them actually to refuse to even sell its earlier generation DUV or deep ultraviolet lithography equipment to Beijing. Uh, Reuters reported last week that the U.S. Commerce Department, uh, BIS, I suppose, is planning to further restrict access to, to chips of 14 nanometers or smaller. What do you make of this policy? I mean, if indeed the reports prove to be correct. I mean, this is relatively old tech, as I understand it. So why does the U.S. care so much about this? What is the national security gain
1: of cutting off China from this older technology, <laughs> that is a great question. And so, I think it's an issue around a sort of a justification <laughs> for denying China this this most advanced technology. That's sort of where the crux of the matter is. So, EUV, for example, it is controlled by U.S. export controls and then by the sort of broader multinational organization, the Wassenaar Agreement. Uh, and and that was th- those those controls were added fairly recently. Um, And so that's that's why, for example, the U.S. um, uh, is able to control uh, the access of of, of the Chinese company access to that equipment. And also, interestingly, other companies like SK Hynix, which wanted to use ASML uh, equipment, the EUV equipment in its Wuxi factory. Uh, To make memory was also denied uh, the the, the permission to do that because of concerns over that the technology could leak, for example, to to Chinese companies. Right. Now, the justification here is really, in my view, a little problematic at one level that there's a lot of concern within the U.S. Department of Defense, for example about the, the potential for Chinese uh, domestic companies to produce advanced semiconductors that can be used in high-performance computers to model m- weapon systems. And that's sort of really the justification that's being used um, uh, for denying China this advanced equipment and the ability to produce domestic semiconductors sure. at advanced, advanced levels. Of course, some of those companies uh, that are doing that can all still produce those in Taiwan. So we'll, we'll have to get to that issue because Taiwan, of course, factors in here. Um, the the so so there's that justification. Although the Chinese, of course, view this very much as the U.S. trying to contain China, freeze China's technolo- technological capability. And if you talk to people, you know, in the administration and in the, in the academic community, I mean, there is this sense that the other, the broader justification is there's a desire to keep U.S. dominance or a leadership in this in manufacturing arena. Of course, the, the leaders are TSMC and Samsung, not necessarily t- Intel now. But that China should be kept some number of generations behind, two to three generations behind, just as a, almost an economic security issue that, that there should be an attempt to maintain Western dominance in, in this arena, so that also is out there as a justification now, the latest thing that you mentioned here this 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 recent attempt, and they 're related the two things you mentioned are related so there's there's an attempt at this point within the administration and you working with allies in the Netherlands, of course in Japan, because to control this equipment, for example, this de- this deep ultraviolet lithography, which has been around for a long time, right, and and covers many major, m- many mature nodes all the way down to really potentially seven nanometers. The reasoning behind that, again, is to it seems to be to to freeze China at fourteen nanometers. And again, this is a complicated issue because the Commerce Department, for example, put SMIC on the entity list, and they specifically said that there would be a denial of licenses for equipment that was uniquely designed to produce semiconductors below 10 nanometers. Now, the problem is none of this equipment that we're talking about is uniquely designed for specific nodes. It can be used across a whole range of nodes. Mm -hmm. But the Commerce Department, probably with some egging on by the Defense Department, has, has identified this 14 nanometer node as a way to be a little clearer about where you're drawing the line. So the problem is where do you draw the line, right? EUV is one thing. There's a whole bunch of other advanced technologies that are really part of the equation here. Once you get below 10 nanometers, uh, it's really not really about the the node so much as it's about a whole suite of technologies, including EUV, but including chiplets and other advanced packaging techniques that really will define sort of where the uh, the industry is going here. And so there seems to be an attempt, hey, let's draw a clearer line here, and 14 nanometers may be clearer than 10 nanometers, and let's determine what's going on here in China. Now, the problem with that is they're going to try to do this by looking almost at a facility-by-facility basis. So looking at at, at companies in China that are producing at more mature nodes, Mm -hmm. you probably don't want to cut off Chinese companies that are producing automobile semiconductors, for example, at more advanced nodes that are already in short supply if you can help it. So if it goes forward, and there's lots of hurdles here still, if this sort of trilateral arrangement goes forward, it would attempt to draw new rules around export controls, around semiconductor manufacturing equipment, and do this on a probably case-by-case basis in China. So if you're a memory company that wants to manufacture memory, maybe that's deemed as a commodity and that's not going to be of concern. But if you're a company like SMIC, which would like to go down to some of those lower nodes, you're going to be denied equipment to do that. Um, But this is going to be a very complicated process. And industry, of course, and ASML included, is not really all that excited about this. Because China remains a huge market. So, for example, right now, there are something like 15 fabs under construction that might want to buy that, that deep ultraviolet lithography equipment from ASML and more maybe to come. So, so it's a huge market for ASML. And all, also, if they can't get that ASML equipment, they won't probably buy other US equipment for other parts of, that, of, the, of the manufacturing process. So, for industry, and many of these companies are making lots of revenue, generating lots of revenue in China. And they're using that to plow back into their R&D. The argument is, you know, you're sort of shooting us in the foot here. By denying Chinese companies access to this technology, you're sort of undermining the whole virtuous cycle of how we do R&D and how we generate revenue. And there are no other markets in the world, really, on the scale of China that can sort of replace, you know, those 15 fabs under construction, for example, that would use DUV, you know, there's there's no easy way to replace that revenue. Uh, in other markets because because building and equipping these big manufacturing facilities takes a huge amount of money a lot of capex um, lots of planning ahead and so uh, the argument is you know again with 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 some of these regulatory or, or export control issues you're messing with an industry that as we talked about earlier is global it has these complicated supply chains and when you go in and mess with that you're going to have a lot of unintended collateral damage and that's the argument the industry is making.
0: And just so we're clear, our ability to go in and mess with that, the U.S. government's ability to do that, is predicated on the, the, the fact that, that there's a lot of U.S.-owned IP in even these DUV machines by ASML, right? That's why they're able to tell them that they can't export. I mean, otherwise, it seems like- As
1: part of the Wassenaar agreement, the, the Dutch government agreed to this idea that this specifically EUV technology is controlled. So the Dutch government agreed to that. The DUV, though, is different. DUV equipment has not, is not currently export controlled. So the, this would be a big deal if, essentially, the Dutch government, the Japanese government, and the U.S. government agreed to control this technology. This is considered sort of, you know, mature technology. It's been around a long time. And so this is an effort, again, led by the U.S. government to try to sort of re-control or, or, or newly control different pieces of the semiconductor manufacturing uh, equipment supply chain. And so it's not clear in this case, in this case, the Dutch government is going to have to go along with this. Gina Raimondo mentioned the beginnings of this trilateral dialogue after the meeting in May of the EU-US Trade and Technology Council. And, you know, and and I've talked to many others in the industry, and there's a lot of skepticism, for example, that you rightly point to. About whether you know, the, the Dutch government, again, who's the, the ASML is sort of the crown jewel of their technology sector, whether it's a good thing for this to happen. So I think there's, there's a lot of detailed discussions about how this would be implemented, who would be affected, what the scope of it would be that, that the Dutch government's going to have to understand before it agrees to this. Right. All this came out of the TTC effort to sort of slowly move the, the export control system into the new era where a lot of these technologies we're talking about are dual use, arguably. And you know, the, keep in mind, the export control system was set up for WMD, weapons of mass destruction. And now it's being asked to sort of shoulder the burden, the existing system, for things like great power competition between U.S. and China, U.S. technology dominance, human rights, all these other issues. It wasn't designed for that. And so this new effort here is part of what will probably be a longer term effort to come up with a, a sort of fifth control regime, if you will. Right that takes into account some of these other geopolitical realities.
0: So I think it's clear that we haven't seen any let up in tech technology controls and export controls and entity listing or what have you um, between the Trump and the Biden administration. Instead, it seems plain that we've seen a ratcheting up of those restrictions. In fact, yeah,
1: is that a fair blanket statement? It's a, it's a, it's a great question, Kaiser. I think there's been a lot of continuity in terms of sort of overall tech Policy approaches, and then of course I think this recent effort is definitely uh, an effort to ratchet up, but also of course the emphasis is on working with allies to do this and and getting away from the sort of unilateral approach that the Trump administration took on all this stuff. I think the difference is that the Biden administration at least prefers to have some more coherence to the policy, at least putting it on putting policies on a firmer uh, legal foundation, for example. So we saw. Some executive orders in the Trump era, uh, for example, like the ban on WeChat and TikTok, uh, rescinded by the Biden team. And and, they're going to take a closer look at how uh, the U.S. might approach um, those complicated issues around TikTok and WeChat, which we should probably do another podcast on around data and access to data. So the, the, the administration is, is trying to sort of regularize or put on a, an, again, on a sounder legal footing, some of these, some of these areas. So the Biden team, for example, also moved management of this military, Chinese military affiliated companies list to the Treasury Department um, and put in place a, a more regular interagency uh, process to choose companies for this list. This is the list that bans U.S. investors from investing in the securities of those companies. And Smic, of course, was caught up in that in that process. Uh, interestingly, uh, in the semiconductor space, um, but there are s- several areas where I think there's ratcheting up. Uh, the Biden team um, has reviewed some Trump-era measures, such as ad- adding Chinese companies to the entity list, and sort of sort of piled on there. So it hasn't really reviewed those entity list uh, actions. But instead it's, it, you know, or it hasn't offered companies ways to get off the entity list as happened in the Obama administration where ZTE, for example, was offered a path to get off the entity list after they were named to it. So they, they sort of continue to add companies to the list, including, uh, expanding that into things like biotech companies that we saw last December added and quantum computing. And again, the justification here is links to China's military modernization or military civ fusion which is which is a big a big deal yeah and then also i think there's that issue i mentioned previously which is looking at the entire export control system how do you sort of modernize the system which was set up for for wmd to sort of account for these other uh concerns around things like semiconductors and and you know even huawei right around telecommunication gear but
0: as you say trying to put them on a a firmer legal footing and doing trying to do it more multilaterally rather than unilaterally. that's a that's a great distinction So we've talked quite a bit about the sort of the outward dimension of it, uh, you know, what they're trying to do to try to starve China of certain key inputs. But let's talk about what they're doing domestically and specifically the CHIPS Act, which passed the Senate in May and is now before the House. So CHIPS, by the way, stands for Creating Helpful Incentives to Produce Semiconductors for America Act. (laughs) Uh, And I I want a job as the guy who comes up with these reverse engineered acronyms.
1: Those are all
0: great. Oh, those are fantastic. Those acronyms. So, where first of all, so this promises fifty-two billion dollars to uh, the semiconductor industry. Where does that number come from? I mean, was that pulled out of a hat? I mean, is there a story
1: behind how that number made its way into the bill? Well, that number was the result of a process that was done within the industry, the semiconductor industry, to try to find a minimal viable capacity model. Right. So. It, it was the result of a, a realization that this heavy dependence on Taiwan for this, these advanced semiconductors and advanced nodes was not a good idea for the industry and not a good idea sort of for arguably for U.S. national security. So the attempt to come up with a way forward on that sort of was based on, on, on calculations about the capacity and the money needed to close to some degree the manufacturing gap between the U.S. and the rest of the world. And there was a lot of input on that issue from different parts of the industry. And they came up with this, with this number of 52 billion, which includes, there's some stuff in there around, about research and other areas. And there's other parts of the, of the, the bills, the, the U.S. Uh, Innovation and Co- Competition Act, which have pieces on R and D, uh, that both bolster U.S. R and D. But it was basically a recognition that, you know, many other countries, uh, advanced developed countries subsidize their semiconductor industry. Uh, Israel, Germany, you know, Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, and that the U.S. needed to, um, you know, be be more active in, in that game. Um, and so the, the idea, though, I think, was to was to sort of, you know, have this be the first down payment on a longer term investment in in onshoring uh, advanced manufacturing to get the U.S. from say 10% of global manufacturing now to 20%. Uh, the EU also seeks to do the same thing: go from 10% to 20% um but this was an attempt yeah. to say how do we do that and to sort of work work back from this from a 2030 time frame um in terms of what what do, what would you need to get this started to attract companies like TSMC, Samsung, Intel, global foundries and others to build facilities in the US and sort of you know begin to chip away as it were <laughs> at that that taiwan's dominance but also other parts of the supply chain
0: um yeah and so i mean it sounds like such an enormous sum of money but Given the cost of building fabs and of buying, I mean, just how many, you know, how many EUV machines could it buy from ASML? That's just not a not a ton. Uh, I know, like, you know, Morris Chang of TSMC has said that, you know, costs in America generally right. are just way, way higher, 25% higher than in Taiwan. Right. I mean, so you talk about it as a down payment, and that makes a little more sense.
1: Yeah, keep in Go mind, on. Kaiser, that the subsidies in all these developed countries you know, there's some part of the, of, of the overall CapEx um, of a major facility, like a, a major new cutting-edge foundry, that companies sort of expect to have a little help on. It's not the whole thing, right? It's, it's just a, a percentage, you know, 5 to 10%, 15% of the overall CapEx, if they can get that subsidy, you know, one way or another, incentives, grants, the benefits for land, all, all sorts of ways to do that. Then that that enables them to keep the cost down, um, and of course the biggest cost in all this is the equipment. You know, buying all the equipment, as you know, EUV the the one version of the EU, of uh, ASML's EUV equipment costs 150 million dollars, and it comes with a huge right. maintenance tail, um, and so it's 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 very very expensive. Um, and then the the I think the newest, the very newest um, numerical aperture ASML EUV equipment is like double that, right? It's like 350 million. I mean, it's really expensive wow. stuff. Um, and so, so the idea of the subsidies and the incentives is to just make this a little more palatable and drive down those capex costs to the point where the economics of those facilities make sense. Now, you know, it's it's still peanuts compared to what um, what a, comp- a single company like TSMC is is going to expend in capex in a single year forty billion, I think, this year for TSMC, and forty four billion next year. Um, and so if you look out over the time horizon but you know that's a but that's a that's a false comparison because you know this is intended to sort of grease the wheels to help those companies uh, make 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 a case with their boards and shareholders that that they're investing wisely and that the costs are, are controllable
0: yeah yeah and it signals support from the government for for this right?
1: it, it happens to be around salaries of engineers and the cost of land and the cost of of, you know, water and and power and all those things, which, which, which Morris Chang, of course uh, at at TSMC has, has said, I think he's called it a foolhardy, you know, effort by the U S that's, that's really doesn't make sense economically Um, because when he runs the numbers, you know, it doesn't look good, but they have to do that. TSMC has to do that, for example, because they have had their arm twisted by the U S government to do that, uh, to put a plant in the U S and to begin, you know, allowing U S to have some domestic capacity. So, you know, Taiwan,
0: obviously, is is, is super important in all of this. And I think for anyone who's been paying attention at all, uh, and who has any kind of uh, a glancing familiarity with national security concerns, understands uh, why Taiwan should be really important in our thinking on this. Uh, But it seems to me that it's just sort of surged in in, in national consciousness just very recently. Is that primarily due to the Ukraine invasion, uh, to the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February? Is that what sparked this renewed interest in Taiwan.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's part of it. Um, absolutely. I mean, you can't swing a dead cat without having somebody make the comparison between Russia, Ukraine, uh, and China and Taiwan. So that has definitely been been uh, been a catalyst here. I think the the you know the the issue of of China and Taiwan was going to come up anyway in, in terms of the the party congress in the fall and see. Xi Jinping getting a, a likely third term and then there's also this uh this idea out there put out by a former admiral at, at PACOM that sort of 2027 is this year that uh that she would like to resolve the the Taiwan issue and you know and seek reunification. That's that's only based on the on the 100th anniversary of the founding of of the Red right, Army. You know, right right right. It's sort of a kind of a silly China and Taiwan analysts will sort of say, well, that's you know, that they don't Necessarily agree with that as an artificial date, but the point is we're now in 2022, um, and now with the with the chip shortage, as we've talked about, the idea that TSMC is so critical here to the global value chain um, is is well known. And so it's like, oh my god, well, what's going to happen to Taiwan in five years? Is are, is China going to march in and uh, you know and take over those those uh, those foundries? So the issue is now sort of on the horizon in a way it wasn't. For quite some time, Taiwan had always talked about its its semiconductor industry as
0: a silicon shield. I mean, Taiwan believed that its very dominance in this just incredibly vital sector just would prevent, um, you know, tensions from spilling over because it, it, it helped to, to dissuade Beijing or to even to deter Beijing uh, because, you know, Beijing presumably would never never risk killing the goose that lays the the golden eggs or the silicon eggs, as it were. Uh, has has all this right.
1: changed? I mean, has the calculus changed? Well, it's a great question. I think it's a big topic, and we probably should do a podcast just on that. But um, <laughs> so it's a big unknown. It's a, the, the big unknown here is what to what degree the semiconductor issue is now part of Beijing and Xi Jinping's calculus on Taiwan. Um, and you know, this this year, for example, we did see for the first time, at least that I've seen, calls from academics for China to prevent Taiwan from Sort of being pushed into the blue supply chain, right, and away from the red supply chain. Right, um, but this is, this is a complex equation, and you know the semiconductors alone, of course, are are not going to affect the, Ch- the China Taiwan dynamic um, in, in in ways that are similar to say the Russia Ukraine issue, right? So the semiconductor is- situation definitely adds to the tensions in ways that I think we don't really fully understand here, and this this happens in a couple ways. The the policies the U.S. is taking, for example which could result in a cutoff of all Chinese companies from using TSMC as a manufacturing platform. That's a real wild card. We saw, of course, um, Huawei cut off, and we've seen many other Chinese companies cut off. You know, DJI, um, Phytium, um, and then, of course, all the AI companies have all been cut off uh, from from U.S. uh, as a result of the analyst action and could also all eventually be cut off from using TSMC as a manufacturing base if the us for example decided to extend the foreign direct product rule to all those companies as some in congress have in fact advocated so if we get a republican congress a correctional sweep in the fall for example we could we could see calls for that so the problem is though in these in this in this increasing tension that we've seen that you mentioned over russia ukraine that sort of focused on on china taiwan we've seen for example young j uh, and jake sullivan meeting periodically to sort of de-risk the situation because of course China now firmly believes the U.S. is hollowing out the one-China policy right. on Taiwan. But I doubt if the semiconductor issue has, uh, is, is part of those conversations. The Chinese aren't going to say, hey, you're, you're messing with our ta- with Taiwan in terms of semiconductors. You know, It's probably not going to happen. Um, but the Chinese rhetoric around the issue has gone up quite a bit. So when this DUV issue that you mentioned, um, uh, there were potential restrictions on that came up. You know, Chinese spokespersons were calling it things like techno-terrorism. Um, yeah. <laughs> and you know, and and uh, you know, really tough language on that. So Chinese officials, of course, are are aware of all of this stuff. They're aware of of all these export controls. They're aware of, of the Taiwan issue. But how it factors into their calculus, and particularly, Xi's calculus on Taiwan is is complicated. I've called it a sort of unknown red line.
0: Yeah, that was a good phrase. Yeah,
1: you know, there are the known red lines around that we've seen pushed quite a bit this year uh, on both sides. And then there's this sort of semiconductor piece because, you know, one dis- one day of disruption of the airspace over Taiwan, for example, would send these huge ripples through the global economy because, you know, you're talking about, you know, airplanes taken off and ships every day that are bringing those semiconductors um, and assemblies to, to all parts of the world. So it's not an academic question as to how China thinks about this. So to some degree, I think it is a deterrence. Um, it has been a deterrence because, you know, it's ch- Chinese companies are are benefiting um, from um, from all this great manufacturing capacity in Taiwan. But if the U.S. sort of cuts off that capacity, then the calculus changes in Beijing, right? It's like, hey, why are we um, allowing the U.S. to, to separate Taiwan in this, in this key sector, for example?
0: Yeah. So let's talk about the U.S. calculus of deterrence. I mean, mm-hmm. walk me through this. I'm we 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 when it comes to Washington, Beijing, Taipei. Do do you think that that the changes that that we're seeing in, in just recent years have actually enhanced American and Taiwanese ability to deter China, or do some of these changes actually, in your mind, undermine
1: deterrence? I would argue that I think they the the changes, by and large, are undermining deterrence hmm. because as I as I've I've noted and I've written about this quite a bit in other articles. You know, it, to the extent that you're cutting off Taiwan uh, from the mainland, from the red supply chain, you're, you're undermining the silicon shield, right? You're preventing Chinese companies from using uh, Taiwan at the same time as you're doing things like trying to freeze China at 14 nanometers, right? So if you're the Chinese government, you know, you, you which views Taiwan as a domestic problem, Taiwan as part of China, and you're seeing... You know, sort of salami tactics, where the U.S. is not only cutting off Chinese companies, but is, is is enticing TSMC to build an advanced fab in the U.S., which they will not build in China, of course, because the Taiwan right. government um, will not allow that. Uh, TSMC has facilities in Shanghai and Nanjing, for example, but they're they're around twenty eight nanometers, right? They're not they're nowhere near cutting edge, and and that could not happen. So it's not just one one piece of this. It's sort of the whole picture for Beijing becomes. Hard to parse here. It's like the the US is peeling off a critical piece of the technology equation and and sort of preventing China from both manufacturing at advanced levels and from using Taiwan. So the combination of those things, plus the the attempt to attract more Taiwan companies to come to the US to build stuff, you know, that has to at least be part of the, the calculus in Beijing about how they might deal with a Taiwan situation if these many other political factors became more problematic, right? And again. Nobody thinks that that China is going to go to war or invade Taiwan just over the semiconductor piece, but it adds a really important element that I don't think gets enough attention, frankly, because I think it's it's huge. And again, I don't think Yang Jiechi and and Jake Solomon are talking about it. But you know, the, from the Chinese point of view, the fact that this academic, um, uh, probably with you know with with permission from the the, the government, is talking about this issue now, and I, I think we'll see more of that as the as the as the months progress here about how the U.S. is seen as sort of peeling off Taiwan in general. And then uh, the semiconductor industry piece of it is is pretty critical here.
0: Yeah, yeah. I want to go back to the chip shortage. And I think we know what lessons the Biden administration seems to have learned from it uh, coming as it did during the COVID pandemic. Uh, We've seen what their response has been. What are the lessons uh, that the Chinese leadership have learned from the chip shortage? What do you think that how has that changed thinking on the part of China?
1: Um that's a great question. Um so <laughs> I think you know the the short answer is that um you know Beijing has has realized um that you know that that the US indeed has these uh, these choke point technologies and and it, it is fully capable of weaponizing uh, the supply chains and undermining you know the business models of Chinese companies. You know Huawei has gone from a 140 billion dollar company to heading south of 100 billion, you know, pretty fast here, right? They're trying to reinvent themselves, but, you know, it's a pretty big deal, right? It's like having um, a Chinese government action undermine the business model of Apple or Google, right? And then those, right. those companies be in sort of a downward death spiral. So the, the Chinese government now is is in this position of trying to figure out how to deal with that. And, you know, when I talk to Chinese industry people, you know, they get how hard it, it, it would be, for example, for China... To recreate the entire semiconductor industry in China, it's virtually impossible. I don't know if you can—if there's enough money in the world to do that, right? Nor the numbers of people that you would need to do that. So, but the key players in the industry, for example, the guy who briefs Xi Jinping on the industry, he, he recognizes this, but he's under pressure to help, you know, to do to make policy, help make policy that will reduce China's dependence. So that means they're pulling out a lot of stops. They have a multi tiered strategy, all sorts of incentives to the semiconductor industry, um, using ca- domestic capital markets like the Starboard in Shanghai, companies can list there. Um, and virtually, there's, there's virtually an unlimited amount of cash in China if you're a semiconductor company, right? There's like The right. country is awash in, in, in cash. The problem is that, that it's not about the cash, right? It's about the personnel, it's about the technology and iterating the technology and it's a result of mostly it has been being plugged into these global value chains mm-hmm. and developing trust with customers so you can continue to sort of you know grow have enough customer base to reinvest the money in new technology and new capital equipment and new new factories so that dynamic is tricky it's tricky to to reinvent that in china in ways that are going to be sustainable and 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 so i think right now we're at a weird point where we don't really know how how far china will be cut off for example from from that global value chain and that equipment and from other things and how quickly they can train engineers um, and poach or poach engineers from Taiwan <laughs> or whatever, right? right? Taiwan has passed all these new laws to prevent poaching and prevent Chinese uh, from, 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 you know, setting up companies in Taiwan to, to have access to technology. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's a weird experiment in the sense that no country has ever tried to do even big parts of the global value chain by on its own. It's always been this sort of division of labor, driven by comparative advantage and driven by market forces um, right. that has, has happened. Now we have governments, you know, in China and in the U.S. sort of messing with this global value chain, supply chain, and and trying to figure out, you know, what to do.
0: So one of the other options available to China is to try to dissuade, you know, the American government from right. continuing down this path of trying to dissuade them from messing with the supply chain, as you say. Uh, but, you know, there are some, maybe maybe one argument working in their favor is that I, I've heard from from several people this, that-, that the, the entity listing of Huawei and the, and the, the and, and of other companies that actually drove hoarding of chips uh, by by a lot of players, and that was part of the reason for not the entire reason obviously, but it contributed certainly right. to the chip shortage. Do you buy that
1: argument and do you think that works to china's advantage? great question Kaiser. look the, the, I've talked to a lot of people about this it's a complicated issue um there's there are two camps one is. Uh, a group that I've talked to in industry that thinks that, that the Huawei entity list action in May 2019 was really the cause of the whole global chip shortage, at least the start yeah. of it. Of course, then they, all these other things came in which contributed, like the pandemic um, fires in various factories and freezes in Texas. But the real fundamental event was putting Huawei on the list. It's a huge company. It, had, it bought huge amounts of semiconductors. And then all the other Chinese companies that were afraid of similar action began to ramp up their orders with various uh, suppliers. And that sort of disrupted the whole supply chain of the industry. The other camp believes that, yes, it was important, but it was it was sort of contr- a contributory factor, which maybe was 15 to 20% to the global shortage. And it ma- certainly made it worse, but was not really the sort of the, the, the dominant factor. Now, it's tricky. I think the truth is probably somewhere in between there. But whatever, it had a huge impact on either making it worse or starting it or making it worse. Um, and it is a perfect example of a sort of government intervention in a complicated global supply chain that definitely had sort of unintended collateral damage of some size, depending on who you believe. It's really hard to collect data on this because um, you'd almost need like a time series of procurement um, for all the different companies across the world and then look at sort of the yeah, May nineteen yeah, yeah. and then see how it changed. And that data is really hard to come by. Um, and nobody has really run the numbers on that. But people who I trust in industry who are working very deep in the industry, you know, they there's at least a belief that the whole chip shortage was a result of the Huawei action or at least in a minimum contributed, you know, uh, substantially to it.
0: I wonder if it's still possible to try to dissuade China from pursuing, you know, technological self reliance. I mean okay, if I'm sitting in Beijing, do I have any reason to believe that uh, the United States' unspoken policy is not, I'm going to kneecap China, I'm going to see China on its belly technologically, I, I will not do anything, I won't stop until, you know, China has been eliminated as a, a, a serious technological hmm. competitor. I, I mean, at and, and, and the uh, even more pragmatic level, it's like, okay, so even if in 2024 we get a guy or a woman who is going to let off a little bit what's the what's the chances that that 4 years later that won't completely change again so i mean i have to think you know they're 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 all in on this and and i wonder if 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 you know are are we doing ourselves any favors by lighting a fire to beijing's efforts to uh, to to sort of wean itself off of the global supply chain and to try to reproduce it domestically i mean christ it's it's it seems to be such a colossal waste uh, for for China and for the rest of the world.
1: No, it absolutely, it absolutely does. I mean, it, you know, to, to think of recreating these value chains, you know, in different parts of the world, um, it, it, you know, it, it's been this sort of virtuous division of labor, um, driven by market forces, driven by really innovative companies like TSMC that have enabled us to pack all that power into an iPhone. Right, that that that's unbelievable. So when you start unraveling that, um, you know the question is, you know who who understands it well enough to to help unravel it, and and you know what are they going to be the unintended consequences? Um, Last year, for example, we helped a big semiconductor company submit their report to this request for information from the Commerce Department about their supply chain, how their supply chain worked, and how they had handled the global chip shortage. And what became clear from that exercise was, of course, nobody has visibility on on all the pieces of this complicated supply chain. And so, Hmm. um, uh, you know, so to to expect that governments are going to be able to intervene here uh, in an efficient way and, and, uh, and, and make decisions that sort of reflect the reality of the industry is, is, you know, to me is a bit of a tall order, but in terms of your question, are we lighting a fire under Beijing on this? Uh, I think there's a short answer is absolutely. Of course, Uh, as as we've seen just in uh, Beijing's actions in the last two years to try to ramp up all these, different uh, levels of support for self-reliance the rhetoric of course from the top is all about self-reliance. The long answer though is really tricky because it's not clear to me that state-directed industrial policy coupled with whole industries being cut off from aspects of the global economy and R&;D and, and other commercial value chains is going to produce you know a winner here like um, again it's sort of an un- we're in sort of uncharted territory here. no country can do everything in all the tech sectors. Uh, and, and semiconductors is probably the poster boy here, right? So maybe China can be the exception because they have this big domestic market and they have massive government inputs. But you still you can't change sort of the underlying equation where you need those you need some incentives, you know, for entrepreneurs to do stuff. You need diversity of the workforce, uh, diversity of workforce education. You need labor mobility, um, and you yeah. need access to capital markets, right? That that are that are very liquid and 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 flexible. And so I'm not sure how you get all those. <laughs>
0: And you need time mm-hmm. you need time to develop the kind of right. of you know process knowledge that's so important to to, to right. these these technologies I mean, so right. so what I really worry about is you know these measures from the u s actually force a stronger reaction from Beijing than what we want. Uh, they're causing China to take an action uh, that it might not otherwise have taken several actions, including a lot of just the kind of bad behavior you know I'm talking about industrial espionage and and uh, that mm-hmm. that sort of thing that we're, that we worry
1: about in the first place. So I, I don't know that we're, we're doing anything to dissuade them anyway. No, no, that's a good, that's a good thought. Let me just add quickly on that. I mean, there, th- that has come up, right? Like that, like we're going to force them to do all this. And so they're going to step up, you know, cyber espionage and steal all this stuff. The problem with that argument is um, I just don't buy it. I mean, uh, uh, stealing IP is not a business model, right? And it really, again, right. it doesn't allow you necessarily to, to advance. You have to have, there's many, many pieces that are sort of unspoken kinds of uh, capabilities you need that aren't written down like engineering a, or, you know, tweaking out a, a, a semiconductor manufacturing supply chain. So you can't steal all elements of that. You still have to actually do it yourself and do it domestically. Um, and so some of that might happen. It might be, of course, efforts to, 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 to steal IP, but it's still, you know, that's dangerous then because then of course you get, you really are, are going to talk about a, a decoupling of, of those, um, of sort of a whole set of, 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 relationships yeah. over supply chains it's and, R&D and everything that is not really, again, what who, the question is sort of, what's the benefit, the cost benefit here in terms of gains to U S national security, for example, and, and the risks and, and the, the very more quantifiable risks you could argue of breaking up this sort of uh, the, this virtuous industry in ways that are only going to drive up costs and sort of hurt everybody. My, my bottom line here is, you know, nobody in the, has run the numbers on this, right? Nobody is saying, wow, if we, you know, restrict all the stuff going to China over all these areas, what's the benefit to U.S. national security, for example, and what's the cost? Nobody has, as far as I can tell, has run those numbers and made that cost-benefit analysis. And I think that's really dangerous um, in, in the policy community to, to understand, um, like, how this affects your own industry, for example, as I mentioned, um, and how this affects the global industry. and I think that's sort of sorely needed is actually like real data um, to understand the downsides of some of these policies.
0: So Paul, let me wrap up with one question here. Um, Nancy Pelosi is planning a trip to Taiwan in August. Beijing has already, mm-hmm. you know, hauled out some of its its strongest language in, in diplomatic démarches. but the, the U.S. seems pretty determined to push the limits. So what happens now? What's
1: Beijing's likely response to this? Well, great question, Kaiser. And that sort of gets out of the semiconductor space and into the the U.S.-Taiwan space. I think it's important to understand that, you know, if Pelosi goes, that would come, on the one hand, it's not unprecedented, right, for for senior U.S. congressional uh, visitors to Taiwan. But on the other hand, it comes on the heels of a series of events um, this year that China at least has interpreted. You can argue whether China is overreacting or overinterpreting U.S. action, but it comes after a series of actions, visits in February and March by official and unofficial delegations, Mike Pompeo, uh, Evan Medeiros, others. Um, and then this, this misstatement in, uh, in, in May uh, that the State Department put up that left out that U.S. doesn't support Taiwan independence. And then, of course, President Biden's off-the-cuff remarks in Tokyo about coming to the defense of Taiwan. So China really has, I think, concluded that the U S is intent on hollowing out the one China policy. And again, you can argue over whether they're overreacting to that, but that's the perception um, from all the Chinese uh, leaders that I've talked to um, over the last and academics that I've talked to over the last few months. So the Pelosi thing would come at arguably one of the most tense moments ever in U.S.-China relations, right? Because the broader relationship is in such tatters. There's very little communication between leaders, except at the sort of Biden sea level. And then this sort of in-between, you have these de-risking uh, uh, meetings where Jake Sullivan rushes off to Luxembourg or Geneva to, you know, to put out a fire. Um, that's not really a recipe, I think, for, for long-term stability here. And then like the military leaders haven't talked to each other. I was at a conference last week where a ad- ad- former PACOM uh, commander, noted that when he was PACOM commander, he had the cell phone numbers of Chinese military counterparts. And so in the event of a Chinese ship running too close to a U.S. ship, you know, he could he could send them video and they would respond to that. Now we have nothing like that. So the potential for an accidental uh, response to this. So if, for example, I assume when, if Pelosi lands in Taiwan, the Chinese will launch a series of sorties, you know, into the Taiwan ADIZ maybe even crossing the median as a, as a sign of protest. Now, what if you have an accident as a result of that too, right? A Taiwan plane gets too close, you have a collision, you know, just, to, just, just to, all this raises the sort of potential for an inadvertent thing, but it also raises the stakes for China, to, which, which, which increasingly sees the U.S. pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing on Taiwan and could be pushed into a position where they have, they have to make some gesture. Now, I was in China in 1996 when Beijing launched those mobile missiles north of Taiwan, you know they could do a lot of things that are short of some kind of a, 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 a full up invasion right they could they could threaten the offshore islands they could they could demand demilitarization of some of those offshore islands, they could take some of those islands, and then the, then the u s would be in a position um, where you know the status quo had changed uh, right. significantly, and there was a need to respond here. My hope would be that something like that would force a whole renegotiation of the complicated um, you know trilateral relationship those documents that govern the relationships the three communiques the TRA the Taiwan relations act and the, and the six assurances you know those are 50 years old right more right. than 50 years old some of them and so the, you, and things have changed so much since since then on on all sides that the argument could be made hey you know we need a new way to to keep the status quo from getting out of hand but the problem with that is that requires some trust between Beijing and Washington, which is now in, you know, not even in short supply, it's, in, it's, it's basically zero. Um, and Correct. so you'd have to sort of rebuild trust before you could even get to the point where you could have a, a, a frank discussion about the future of Taiwan and how to prevent anything from going awry on the military front.
0: Well, on that cheery note, it's, it's great to have you back <laughs> on this show, as always. Uh, thank you for the, the uh, really am- amazingly granular discussion on, on semiconductor industry. Uh, and And Paul, keep up the great work that you're doing. Uh, Let's move on to recommendations. Uh, First, a quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you like what we're doing with this and other shows in the Seneca network, by all means, please show your support by subscribing to our China Access newsletter. Uh, While you're at it, sign up for our business-focused China Edge newsletter. And definitely check out China Edge Live with the formidable Lizzie Lee. It's on YouTube. Just search up China Edge Live. uh, Lizzie Lee, L-I-Z-Z-I-L-E-E. You will dig it. Coming soon, also to your favorite podcast app on your favorite podcast network.
1: Okay, on to recommendations. Paul, man, what do you have for us this week? Okay, I recommend a couple things. One is A Natural History of the Future by Rob Dunn, and it's looking at sort of the bio, the, the 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 reality of how biology is impacting um, all of us, whether it's uh, population or or pandemics. Um, and it's a really like sober and sobering look at the future, and I think it's a good read about tracing out some of the trends we're seeing now and out, out into the next, the next period on the China front. I would also recommend the Ryan, Ryan Haas's book, um, which um, is um, stronger. It's called. Yeah. Yeah. He's been on the show to, to discuss it before. And he's probably discussed it. Right. I, I definitely recommend that. Um, and, and um, you know, the um, there's a whole host actually of China, China related books, which, which, which probably, you know, we should have a, you could, people watching China sort of rate.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got a whole bunch of them that I'm, yeah, that I'm, <laughs> that I'm reading for, you know, for, for upcoming shows. Uh, fantastic. Save, save some of those that you really find that you like for, for the next one. But Rob Dunn, uh, Natural History of the Future, that sounds right up my alley. I'm definitely going to get a hold of that. Thank you. Yeah. You'd like it. Yeah. I'm sure I would. All right. So my recommendation is going to be way more frivolous. It's just a, a, a TV show. Uh, it just concluded its third, I think, third season. Yeah on on Amazon Prime, it's called the Boys. Uh, and it's it's sort of an anti- superhero. Uh, think it's about a, you know a, a superhero universe where uh, there's this gigantic corporation that's been able to sort of manufacture these, you know, people with super abilities. And of course, most of them are complete jerks, uh, including one <laughs> who is a thinly disguised kind of Trumpian figure named Homelander who is sort of, you know, this blonde and just smug looking. Uh, total jerk. I mean, he's, he's you know, thoroughly evil and, and egomaniac. He is Trump incarnate. But uh, fantastic show. It's actually really, that really good. That sounds good. good. Yeah, it's, um, it's not for everybody. It is really violent. I mean, just like it takes violence to, to gratuitous extremes. And, it, it, you know, they're very unafraid of a lot of sexual situations and nudity and things like that. So it's not for the kids, but uh, but definitely check it out. It's kind of a good antidote to, 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 to the sort of happy uh, Marvel stuff, but uh really good. All right. Cool. Uh, anyway, the boys, last season just concluded. Paul, man, what a pleasure as always. You're just uh you are just so so full of incredible depths of knowledge on this stuff. My pleasure, Kaiser. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll have you back on again not too long.
1: yeah, I, I could already see when I was preparing, you know there, there's like three other podcasts in there, but and sorry for all the, the long answers. <laughs> but it, 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 I, last thing I'll yeah, say you're, is you're. it is a complicated industry, and one of the things that's a little frustrating is that you know everybody you know is an expert on semiconductors, and so you have a lot of stuff coming out. I see every day that I think, wow, you know, like is this you know who wrote this? What are their credentials? You know, it really does require at least some time um, to develop an understanding. I work on I work with clients on a daily basis, you know, trying to understand their problems in the industry. Uh, across the globe. And I think it requires that kind of, you know, attention to it. Uh, and I see a lot of stuff that's written that I'm like, wow, that's, you know, that doesn't really reflect the reality of the industry. Um, and so that's one of the challenges in this space is because it's such a hot space, everybody needs to th- feels they need to write on it. Um, and sometimes the, the the quality of that writing is, you know, is just a little, uh, you know, it's, 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 it can be agenda driven if there's a, a need to, you know, make a policy recommendation, um and it doesn't always reflect the sort of reality of the industry, which is which is quite complicated and you know, need, requires some long term exposure to, I would argue at least. Well, I would
0: encourage everybody to read Paul's very informed writing on semiconductors and other technology issues on sub China. He's a, a regular contributor to us and we really value uh the, the, the essays that you've written for us. So thanks thanks so much. And I'll
1: probably do it one soon on all this on the D U V stuff for you.
0: Great, great, great. I look forward to it. So thanks for coming on and we'll see you again soon.
1: Thanks. What a pleasure. Always, I love the the venue. All
0: right. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com or just give us a, a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at @SupChinaNews, and be sure to check out all the other shows in the Seneca Network. We've got new shows coming very soon. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Take care.